Thank you so much, men. Would you take your Bible and turn to the book of James, James chapter 1. As you turn there, I'd like you to just think about what happens to you, what kind of internal monologues happen in your mind when bad things happen to you. What do you start saying to yourself? A few weeks ago, my wife, uh, my family and I were in the mountains. Um, my brother got married, and we had a couple extra days, and so we went up to Hendersonville, and we were staying in a little mountain cabin up there enjoying some time. And uh, there was this tiny little road that, um, you know, you would take up to your mountain, and uh, mount, the little cabin, and uh, we went up this area. It was a, a very, not a very wide road at all, and uh, I, I had turned off the GPS because I don't need a GPS. I know how to find my way around, and I um, and so I turned I turned left into our um, our our road, but it wasn't our road, and and I realized after a little while, oh, I'm in I'm in the wrong spot. I need to get out of here, and so I started to back up into a, um, and then there was a, there was like a there was a house. It had a, a back you know like a a road um was a driveway I could back up into and then turn around. And as I was trying to execute my three point turn, uh, I realized how narrow that road was, and I ended up. Um, with all of the children talking to me at the same time. Uh, have you ever had that situation where you're trying to make a very delicate decision or trying to make a very important thing, and you've got just, just this, this res- resonant noise in your, in your ears, and, and, I'm trying, and my, the front, my front wheels went off one side of the road, and the back wheels were spinning, and I, I said, just stop. Everybody get out of the car. I need to think. And I sit there, and I'm thinking to my, you know what my mental, my, my monologue is in my brain right now? Marshall, you're such an idiot. <laughs> what are you doing? You're going to be stuck here. You've got to have somebody who's going to have to come and, like, pull you out. What are you doing? Like, I, I don't know how to do this. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is awful. I'm in a terrible situation. I'm like, just leave me alone. Let me think about this, you know? And so we get the kids out of the car so I can actually drive without screaming in my ears. And, and I was able to navigate the, the back and forth and get it out of there. And um, I, I, if, the, if the house that we backed into had a camera, just for safety's sake, I, like, went into the driveway and, like, waved at him and said, thank you. Sorry about this. <laughs> And um, what, what, is your, what is your internal monologue? What are you thinking when you find yourself in a situation that you did not prepare for? You, you did not expect it to happen. You face roadblocks or speed bumps, and something happens in your life. Um, there's a great line from the movie Fiddler on the Roof where the father named Tevye is he's a poor milkman, and he's got three daughters, and he speaks to God a lot in that movie, in that play. And as he speaks to the Lord, he says, Lord... He says, I know the good book says that the Jewish people, we are your chosen people, but every once in a while, could you choose to pick on somebody else? <laughs> I think some people have that feeling. They look at their life, they look at the past couple years in their life, they look at what they've gone through, and they think to themselves, Lord, what are you doing? Why, why these circumstances? Do you ever feel like God's picking on you? Do you ever wonder how trials and God's purpose and God's blessing are supposed to work together. You say, Lord, bless us, but we have experienced no blessings recently, you feel. In fact, when Christians look at the Bible, sometimes they're not exactly how we're supposed to understand this book, how this book is supposed to help us through these times. We look at these books, the Bible, and we think, well, this is a lot of doctrine, a lot of truth, but how am I supposed to use this to get me through tomorrow? How am I supposed to make decisions theme of this book is practical Christian living. 
And what we're going to find in the next many weeks as we go through the book of James is that God cares how you live your life. God cares about the little decisions you make. He doesn't only care about the decisions you make, He cares how you came to those decisions as well. Today we're going to see how God uses circumstances, trials, and things outside of us to form us and make us who He wants us to be. Let's, close, let's open the word of prayer, and then we'll dive into this book. Father, we thank You for Your inspired word that You've given us through the Apostle James, who gives us this wonderful book of direct, plain, practical instruction. I pray that we put aside our pride and learn from You. And Father, we ask that you would give us peace, but also hope. And I pray for those today who have found themselves in circumstances beyond their control, realizing that this is not what they planned. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see this as you see it, as you're making them the person you want them to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. James is one of the what's called general or sometimes called Catholic epistles, meaning that it was written to the entire church, to the whole church, not just to a specific church. Paul writes to the Philippians, he writes to Timothy and to Titus, whereas James and Hebrews and First and Second Peter and Jude are written to the church. This is written to believers, and so it applies to us as well. As we look at this book, I want you to notice before we even dive in that uh, the title, of course, is Unexpected Trouble. We see here that, uh, that God calls for us first to eject to, I'm sorry, to adjust our perspective on your identity. Adjust your perspective on your identity. James, he says, a bondservant, he's introducing himself, James, a bondservant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. Even in this greeting, in this opening, we see an amazing thing that James describes himself as a bondservant of God and of Christ. Who is this James who calls himself a bondservant. This is not James, the son of Zebedee. It's not that James. This is not James, the son of Alphaeus, another James who's described in the Gospels. This is James, who was the half-brother, we call the half-brother of Jesus, because they shared a mother, Mary. And in fact, in Matthew 13, 55, we have this James described. Is not this the carpenter's son, talking about Jesus, is not his mother called Mary, and his brothers are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? So these are Jesus' brothers, James, Joseph, or Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And he was this half-brother. He was born to Mary and Joseph. We know Jesus was born to Mary, and he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. But he did not initially believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I mean, imagine growing up in a household where your, your brother is the Messiah. How hard would that be? How hard would it be to come to grips with that? That your brother is the, is the chosen one of God, the son of God, sinless. I mean, that would be really hard. And James did really struggle with this. And it, and it appears that he was not one of the early uh, believers. In fact, it wasn't until after his resurrection, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he talks about the gospel. I delivered you, first of all, that which I received. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That He was seen by Peter, by Cephas, and by the twelve. After that, he was seen by 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. Some have fallen asleep or have died. Look at verse 7. After that, he was seen by James, his brother. Then by all the apostles. In fact, in Acts 1.14, shortly after this, James and the apostles were at Pentecost in Jerusalem. All these continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. 
James was there. He became a very important figure in the early church. He was pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And he comes into play in Acts 15 with the, uh, the Jerusalem Council. He, he, we actually just preached, I preached the book of Acts recently, and James featured prominently in that, in that book. He was martyred in A.D. 62. And James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, writes to us this very early New Testament book. And when he says he is a bondservant of God and of Jesus Christ, I want you to just think about the fact that he calls himself a common slave, a Roman slave, one who has no freedom to make his own decisions, one who doesn't decide what he's going to do today. A bondservant doesn't wake up and say, what do I want to do today? A bondservant wakes up and says, sir, what do you want me to do today? And James identifies himself not as a king, not as a prophet, but a bondservant, one who serves willingly. Slaves were in the lowest class of society, not to be desired. No one wanted to be a slave. He was bound to his master's desire, and James opens up the letter by calling him a slave, calling himself a bondservant of God, and this is so important, of the Lord Jesus Christ, this one whom he grew up with. He knew Jesus, and he calls himself a bondservant of that one. He had to adjust his thinking and adjust his perspective on his identity. And you need to see yourself as well as a bondservant of God, of Jesus Christ, one who follows his commands. He further calls us as God's people in exile. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this point, but he says to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, specifically he's writing to Jewish believers most likely, but he calls them the 12 tribes. These are the Jewish believers, but the, the lessons of James are for us. These 12 tribes are scattered. They have been like in exile away from the land, away from people, uh, away from Jerusalem, and and they, they see themselves here as this kind of remnant waiting for Christ to return. And we too are scattered. We too don't live in our current home. Our home that we live in is not here. The brothers have been scattered due to oppression by the wicked leaders of this world. But when we, you know, when we travel places, we expect things to be different, not always accommodated to us. I ask you to pray for my wife and I. We're traveling tonight. We leave for France. This evening we leave on a plane and we'll be in France tomorrow. We'll be ministering with the Lochers. And we had to make lots of preparations and watch lots of YouTube videos and, and read lots of books about what to expect. Because you can't just go in there expecting things to be like they are in America. You, you will not find that to be the case. And anytime you travel, you expect things to be different. You expect the bed to be different. And people always say, oh, it's so good to be home and sleep in my own bed have my own coffee, right, out of my coffee mug that I like. When, when you live in a place, you adapt that place to yourself, and you become very comfortable in that place because it fits you. But Jesus calls us to live in this world because it's not our home, right? This place is like we're travelers. We're pilgrims. You should not get too comfortable here. This world is not your home. And in this letter, the first topic that James is going to address as he gets out of his greeting here is the topic of trials and hardship, because before he can give them help and hope, he needs to address their immediate pain and struggle. I want you to see what he does here as he addresses them in verses 2 through 4, as he says, we must adjust your perspective on difficult times. How do you do this? Well, the first thing, maybe the hardest thing, is that you must consider trials as joy. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Let's take this apart piece by piece. He speaks to believers in Jesus Christ. My brethren, this book was written to believers in Christ. If you are a believer in Christ, if you're a child of God, if you've been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ in your life, if you've been born again, that means that this book 
applies to you and was written to you, but this book cannot apply and cannot, cannot work for someone who has not trusted Jesus as their Savior. This book is written to believers. God's grace is that God paid the price for our sins. He saved us when, he put our, when we put our trust in him. Grace is, that, is not the same as works. People who work their way, try to work their way to heaven will never get there because your works cannot satisfy God's demands. It's not about striving. Grace is about trusting. It's about reliance. It's about dependence. So where's your confidence for salvation this morning? Where's your confidence in having peace with God and going to heaven? Is it in your own works? Is it in what your parents did for you? Or is it in what Christ has done and you trust in him alone? If you're one of those who've received the grace of God, guess what? You're one of the brothers and sisters who are in the audience here. He says, brethren, what's the next phrase? Brethren, count it all joy. To count something is to reckon something, to consider something, to make it in the ledger on one side of the ledger or the other. It's to say this, I will choose to account this. It's a, it's a joy. Now is joy, this is a hard question. Are you ready? Is joy good? Is it, is it, a, is it a happy thing or is it a sad thing? It's a happy thing. Great job. It, joy is a happy thing. Trials, are those a happy thing or a sad thing? They're a sad thing. Like I hope nobody's sitting there thinking, I really wish I had a worse life than I have right now. I'm not trying to be silly, but like people, we, we do enjoy good life, and we don't like bad things, right? We like good things. We don't like bad things. That's normal, and that's good. That's not, nothing wrong with that. But what he says is, is consider it. That means you need to take that trial, and you need to count it in the joy column. That sounds impossible to us. Count it joy, my brethren. Let's keep going. When you fall into various trials, let's keep looking at this. Why should we? Why should we consider these trials to be joy? First, this word "fall" has the idea of an unexpected plunge. This is not a planned event. It's like you get tripped and you fall into a river, or you just slip and fall. It is a unexpected uh, deluge. It's something that that surprises you. It's like you 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 get up. Have you ever have you ever actually, as an adult, fallen? It's 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 disorienting. You fall and you're like, what happened? Like, I, I did not, that happened so fast. I talked to some, some of my older folks here in the church who I've gone and visited you in the hospital. You fall and you break your arm or you fall and you hurt your hip. And we go and we pray with you. We talk to you. And I say, how, what happened there? I don't know. I, I just, it happened so quickly. And that is how it happens to us. It's like all of a sudden you're on the ground and you say, I don't even know how I got here. And, but notice the next thing. These are various trials. These are unpredicted and unpredictable in their difficulty. You know, it's one thing to expect a test, to walk into a classroom and say, teacher has a test on the, on the syllabus. You're walking in knowing you're going to take the test. You have prepared for the test. It's another thing entirely to not expect it and to face it. To be, to be walking through life, normal, doing your normal stuff, and then God brings about a test you totally did not expect to come. The element of surprise really hurts. I, I've dealt with so many families who say, well, I never thought we'd be here at the start of the week. I've heard that phrase countless times, right? Because it's a, it's a surprise. It's various. It's, it, it's, it's one thing or it's another. And these trials, what a trial is, is pressure that reveals the true nature of something. This is not talking about temptation to sin. I want to be very clear. The various trials that you're talking about here is not the temptations to sin. It is a trial. It is a, it is a pressure cooker that you're put in, that God allows you in, that reveals your true nature and reveals your true self. So don't ask, don't miss, 
out what God is asking you to do here. We are expected, we are asked to consider our unexpected trials and tests to be joy. Normally, these are the things we would want nothing to do with. Instead of running away from them, we are to thank God for them and count them as joy. That's so hard to do, but we're called to do it. Count your trials, consider them as joy. And as a bondservant of Christ, you've been called to consider the hardship that God brings into your life for His purposes. Look at this next purpose. Oh, this next point. God, we must look to God's purpose. In our, this will help us in considering a joy. We need to look to God's purpose in our trials. Look at verse 3. Knowing, that word knowing there is so important because it gives us the basis for understanding why we can consider these trials as joy. Knowing something. What is, what is this telling us? This is telling us that primarily this is a battle in our mind and that we must face this battle in our mind, knowing that the testing of your faith, that revealing of your faith produces patience. The mature, it reveals the nature of your faith. What you believe has the opportunity to work itself out through the revelation of testing. When you are tested, what you believe will come out of you. What you truly believe will come out of you. If you look at the next part, he says it produces patience. Patience is faith in action over time. If you think about it, it's, it's patience waiting on the Lord, what He has promised to do. That takes faith in action. It takes time. And patience takes forging through hardships over time. The testing of your faith produces patience. You need to look to God's purpose in your trials, not just your own comfort. It's easy for us to say, well, why does my car keep breaking down? I can't stand this car. God, why'd you let me buy this car? It keeps every time, breaks down all the time. And Lord, you've made my life miserable by giving me this stupid car. I hate it. This must not have been your will. Because obviously, this car is making me miserable. Count it joy when you fall into very... You say, that's a silly example. That's exactly the kind of example he's talking about here. All kinds of examples. We're not just talking about losing loved ones. We're talking about the small things in life too. And here, you can get really frustrated and not see that God has a purpose in the trials he's bringing your way. God's not doing this for the fun of it. Like he's like, oh, let me see what kind of fun stuff I can cook up for my children today. Aha, and he, it's not that kind of a thing. He's not, he's not making you miserable on purpose in order to pleasure, make, give pleasure to himself. He is doing it because he loves you and he has a purpose for you. And his desire for you is that you are producing patience in your life through the testing of your faith. Let's keep going. He says we need to give time for God's plan to develop. Look at verse 4. It doesn't happen overnight. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. No, okay, there's a couple things here that are super interesting to me. One is that he says you need to step back and don't interfere. Let patience work. Don't throw a monkey wrench in the situation or abort everything and say, oh, I got to just quit. I got to run away. I, I can't handle this. Allow patience to work. It's almost like patience is a person. It's described as a force for good in our lives that God is using. And it says, let patience have its perfect work. Now, that word perfect is fascinating because the word perfect is connected to the idea of that which fulfills a purpose. See, when I say perfect, you typically think without flaw, right? If I say, it's a perfect pizza, you're thinking, it's no flaws, you know, no olives. So it's a perfect pizza, right? You think in your mind, perfect means no flaws. But in my mind, 
or not my mind, in God's mind here, in the Bible, when the word perfect is used in our translation of the word, it has, it's this word teleos, has the idea of an end point. We still use that word uh, in some forms in English, uh, but, but uh, the idea of an end point or a purpose. So, for example, the purpose of my microphone that is attached to my face right now is to amplify my voice. It can be a, a good-looking microphone, or it can be an ugly microphone, or it can be whatever, but if it doesn't amplify my voice, it's not fulfilling its purpose. If the microphone stops working, then it is no longer a perfect microphone. It is not accomplishing the goal for which it was designed. So it has to do with the end point. And so if you read this verse again, let patience have its work to produce its end point, that you may be what? perfect. Same idea, that you may fulfill the, require, the, fulfill the purpose that God has made you for. Have you ever tried to use a tool for the wrong job? My wife and I were first married. I, I realized very quickly that I had been using my dad's tools for everything because I had no tools. Like there's this, it dawned on me as I'm sitting there as a young married man, and I'm trying to put together a bookshelf that we just bought from the store, and you, you get it, and it's got it all packaged up, and you undo it, and then I say, okay, where, where are the screwdrivers in this house? And I realize, well, if I don't know, <laughs> then they're nowhere. So I did what every, anybody would do. Rather than go buying a screwdriver, I said, what can I use as a screwdriver in this house, right? And I found a pair of scissors made by Smith & Wesson that had a, a flathead screwdriver sticking out the back end of the handle. And you know what? I put together a bookshelf with a pair of scissors. I did. Now, it was not easy. It was very awkward. I did not cut myself. Praise the Lord. I just kind of, you know, you, you, it, was, it was annoying. It did not work very well. They were not really, it was kind of designed that way, but not really. It was designed to be used in a pinch. You know, God has given us as gift. Scissors are meant to cut. They're not meant to, to, to drive screws. It's obvious. You were made to glorify God. You're not made to glorify yourself. Okay? Now, think about this. When we get our purpose out of whack and we think we're here to glorify ourselves, to make ourselves happy, to make ourselves comfortable, to build ourselves up, to build our kingdom, if you get that as your reason for living, you will be very disappointed because that is not what you were designed for. You were not designed for that. You will find yourself frustrated. God says patience needs to have its perfect work. It needs to have its purposeful work so that you can be perfect and complete. You can do what you were called to do, and you can do it well. Patience is an ongoing thing. Notice here, it is something that takes time to develop, and as patience does this purposeful work, we will be complete. God will allow us to accomplish what he calls us to accomplish. Complete just means meeting all expectations, being the most complete person, fullest person that you were designed and intended by God to be, full and complete, lacking nothing. God has a plan for you, and he's, his plan for you is far better than your plan for yourself. And, and so many times we find ourselves trying to do things with the wrong tool. If you were to take a few moments and mentally write a pros and cons list on a sheet of note paper and list, as you considered your life, all the good things and all the bad things. I'm not asking you to do that right now, but if you, if you were to do that, if you were to say the good things in my life are on this side, the bad things in my life are on this side, how many of those things on the cons list, on the bad things, on the bad side, would you have to consider these trials as joy? How many of those things where you say, that was a really, really hard time, but God is using this to make me the person he wants me to be. I need to count it as joy. That's what he's asking us to do. Your perspective needs to change on difficult times, and your perspective needs to change on difficult 
decisions. How do you decide which way to turn and which way to go when you're in these pressing and challenging times and it isn't obvious? Do you close your eyes, open your Bible, and do this, and you hope that it's a good verse? I mean, that's what some people, I'm sure, have done before. I heard when I was, um, I, 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 don't, I could not find a source for this story, but I heard when I was in seminary, one of our professors told a story about a pastor he heard who said that, um, you know, his life verse was Luke 19.34 because he was born in 1934. And he went to that verse, and the verse says, the Lord, and they said, the Lord has need of him. And so, therefore, he was used by God, and God had purposed for him and called for him. The problem, if you know that passage, that this verse has a context. And it was not talking about a pastor who would be born in 1934. That verse was talking about a donkey <laughs> that Jesus needed to go into Jerusalem. And this verse is teaching, yes, that God has specific needs for specific things, but, but is that really how you should find your purpose in life? Because if so, we have a problem. I could not find any verses that are chapter 19, verse 84, which is when I was born. Um, there, this, is, this kind of decision-making, I hate to say it, is about as biblical as a horoscope. This is not how God intended us to read our Bibles, to use our Bibles, and how to decide the future, how to decide what to do. You're not supposed to just open your Bible at random. Can God use that? Can God be, and an, yeah, I'm sure God could use that, but that is not the plan that God has given us. That's not what we're left up to. A lot of the Christians, a lot of Christians make decisions this way, but how should we make decisions? Well, the Bible gives us a very straightforward way of making decisions in James 1. Look at this, first in verse 5, we must ask God for the wisdom that we need. Okay? If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without approach, and it will be given him. Notice this. You need to recognize we lack the wisdom we need. Without that, you will never ask God for wisdom. Human wisdom is acting and moving forward without considering what God has to say about something. Even the simple ones you don't think about often. Wisdom is skillful living. It's skill in living, knowledge with actions. You need God's wisdom. I need God's wisdom. And we need to recognize we lack wisdom. If any man lacks wisdom, maybe better, because we act wisdom, you could say. You could translate that. Since men lack wisdom, you need to ask God. And once you see you need wisdom, you need to turn somewhere else. Where do people turn today? Google. It's true. How do I do that? Google it. No one thinks, well, Lord, what should I do? Or, you know, in fact, we talked about this with parenting. It's an interesting problem that uh, we've talked about with some, some people who say, you know, parenting today, a lot of moms... I, I'm not, I love you all. I love you very much. But sometimes, rather than reaching out to another older mom who has been through this before, you're, you're Googling stuff online, and you get all kinds of ideas out there. We turn to all kinds of places for help, but we know we don't have it all together, and we might turn to something like the internet. But God says, when you recognize you lack the wisdom that you need, go to the God for the wisdom that you need. Go to Him. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. It's a very, very simple idea, but you need to ask God for the wisdom that you need. And the reason that it says, and I actually struggled over this for a while, I was going to just translate this, let him ask God. But then I looked at it, and, it, and there's a reason that your Bible says, let him ask of God. And I'll explain that. Is that the phrase, who gives to all men liberally and without reproach, that, that phrase is tied up with the name God as a description like this. It, it, if I could rephrase it in English, it'd be like this. 
let him ask of the God who gives liberally and without reproach. It's that God. It's such tied to his nature. It's describing who he is. He is the kind of God and the God who gives liberally and without reproach. Go to God for the wisdom that you need because God promises to give the wisdom we need. This is something you've got to get latch onto as we try to make decisions. He gives you this wisdom liberally and without reproach. He gives it freely and bountifully. Like he, he pours it on and keeps going and keeps going. God's grace is abundant. God's wisdom is abundant. He will keep pouring on that wisdom, and it will be given to him. This is a promise for that the one who asks, God will give this wisdom. If you ask God of wisdom, you don't need to worry if he'll give it to you. He has. If you ask God for wisdom, he will willingly give you what you need in wisdom. And God promises not to mock us for asking for wisdom and without reproach. This means he won't find fault with you. He won't heap insults upon you. He won't mock you or belittle you. God is not in heaven rolling his eyes that you asked him over something that he considers insignificant. He won't do that. He does not reproach you. He gives you wisdom. There is joy in his heart when you ask God for wisdom, even over small things. God gives, God gives you the wisdom you need. Recognize you need that wisdom. And, but here's the catch. You must exercise faith when asking God for wisdom. Look at verse 6. Here's the condition. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. There is no doubting allowed. It's amazing here. He says uh, to ask in faith is to act out on God's promises. You believe that God has promised, and you act out in faith. You act out, you, you go forward with that. What does it look like to ask without faith? Well, I think that some people say, well, if I'm asking, I'm asking in faith, right? Well, not necessarily. I think to ask without faith is to ask because you've been told to, or to ask but not act on the wisdom you've been given. How do you know if you've received God's wisdom? Well, ask yourself these simple questions. What did God promise that he would give me wisdom? Is God faithful to his promises? Is God faithful to his promises? Yes. Did he promise to give you wisdom? If so, then yes, you have received God's wisdom. And if you do not believe God, you will face what the Bible calls, I call, and the Bible describes as extreme instability. Look at this. For he who doubts, I'm asking faith, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. What an image. The wave of the sea that just gets tossed around, no foundation, no stability. It has, it is, it is just thrown around here and there. Isn't this how we feel when we don't act on the wisdom that God has granted? Should I do it? Should I do it? Lord, should I do it? I don't know. Should I do it? Ah, I'm not sure. Should I not do it? I don't know, Lord. Ah, you said, uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm double-minded, right? I, I, I'm unstable. I, I, I'm sure uh, that you all have been there. I have been there. And when there's an ins- insecurity, and, and he, he says here, if you do not believe God, you will face extreme instability. If you don't believe God, you will not receive the wisdom from God. In fact, in verse 7, he says, let not that man suppose you'll receive anything from the Lord. If you don't come in faith to God, then God's not going to give you the wisdom that he would have given you. In fact, this man, this doubting man, is called unstable. 
If you don't believe God, you'll be unstable in everything you do. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He has two competing thoughts in his mind at the same time and can't decide which way to go forward. So he is paralyzed. I was speaking with Grace this week, uh, Secretary Grace Templeton, and she reminded me of an illustration that Dan Wilson gave, who was a youth pastor here years ago. He described being double-minded like the squirrel who is running across the road and then halfway across decides to go back and gets hit by a car, right? It's like if you just kept going, you would have been fine. In fact, I personally believe this is part of what's going on in Revelation chapter 3 when he says you'd be hot or cold, be hot or cold, but not lukewarm. I don't think he's talking about spiritually hot or spiritually cold. I think he's talking about being useful. Cold water is useful for things. Hot water is useful for things. Lukewarm water is not useful for anything. You, you can't be double-minded. If you're a double-minded man, you're unstable in all your ways. You, are, you do not have stability in your life. So some things to consider as we close the message today. First, receiving God's wisdom does not mean we ignore common sense. God works through the gifts he has given you, including advice from people, experiences, your own brain to help you make decisions, God's work. Uh, God works this way, and God's wisdom does not mean he, that we ignore all common sense. Often, if a decision is not a moral decision, God allows us to choose something we prefer. So if you've done your homework, if you've done what God has called you to do, and there are two choices so in your rough estimate and your wisdom that God has given you, that you say these are roughly the same thing. Like, it's like the classic example is trying to buy a car. Like I'm looking at the Toyota, I'm looking at the Honda, and I say, well, the Toyota and the Honda, they're both good cars. They're both the same color. I just, what if I want the Toyota over the Honda or the Honda? Like, if they're about the same and I've done my research, I say, Lord, give me wisdom, and I choose one over the other. God has given you that wisdom. Go forward. What happens to a lot of Christians is, 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 the, is this instability because we're waiting for like this voice to come in the back of our heads and say, pick the white one. <laughs> the Bible has given us everything we need for life and godliness. You don't need to hear a special voice from heaven telling you to pick the white one. You make a decision based on the wisdom that God has given. If you lack wisdom, ask God. And I don't think anything is too small to ask God about. If you don't know what to do, ask God. He'll tell you, he'll give you the wisdom you need, and you work through it. And you say, Lord, I don't understand your reasons why you let me to do this, but I will, I will choose based on the wisdom you've promised me to do this. Now, here's another thing. You don't ever need wisdom to decide whether to obey God or not. Okay, the answer is you should always obey and never sin. If, if you're sitting there thinking, okay, I really love my girlfriend, and you know, we're going to get married next year, but maybe we should move in together. Lord, I need wisdom. Should we move in together and start living together before we get married? The answer is no, because God says flee fornication. Don't do that. I mean, it's straightforward, but you'd be surprised how many Christians battle in their hearts trying to ask God for wisdom over whether they should sin or not. Friends, if the Bible says it's a sin, don't do it. We're talking about gray areas here, or non-moral issues is a better way of saying that. Non-moral issues. Good feelings is another thing, and peace follow obedience, not the other way around. You shouldn't wait for God to make you feel good in order to obey him. Lord, I'll witness to this person if you give me that special feeling in my tummy, you know, and I'll feel good about it. Or I'm nervous. I don't want to witness to that person. I'm nervous. I feel very uncomfortable right now. Maybe God's telling me not to witness to that person. I don't think so. That's probably your flesh. That's probably your own pride speaking. That's not the Holy Spirit. God says, tell people about the good news of Christ. If you're afraid to tell somebody, that's not the Spirit of God saying, don't tell that person. Like, think about it. God's, God gives us 
his wisdom. And some people, I think, wait for this peace from God before they decide to move forward in obedience. But God calls us to obey even if we don't feel good about doing so. I think that's very vital. Also, God's wisdom is higher than our wisdom. If we follow his wisdom, we find ourselves in a harder position than we anticipated. If we buy a car that ends up in the shop every six months, this does not mean that God has betrayed us or forgotten us. Remember what we said at the very beginning, count your trials as joy. God has a reason for what he has done. It doesn't mean he fell down on the job. Even a car that breaks down often can be used for the glory of God. God's grand and glorious plan for you is greater than you can imagine, and God's eternal perspective on your temporary trials is far deeper than you can imagine. As we dig into this book, I want you to really ask God to help you reevaluate your thinking. So many of the things that we just take for granted, we say and we do and we act on, need to be adjusted according to God's Word. We need to be really honest with ourselves and radical with how we deal with these things, because if we allow our feelings to dominate our lives, it will destroy us. Don't allow your feelings to dominate, allow God's Word to dominate. Obey God. Ask Him for wisdom. Adjust your thinking on your identity. Are you a bondservant of Christ? Adjust your thinking on your trials, and adjust your thinking on the decisions you have to make. Let's close with prayer. Father, we ask you to help us to trust you and to adjust our perspective. Help us to recognize our own faults, our own weaknesses. But Lord, today we, we cling to you. We ask you, Lord, to please give us the wisdom we need for this week. We don't know the future. Only you know what's going to happen tomorrow. We, we have no idea. But we know that whatever it is, is a good and perfect for us. Now, we can trust you through these things that are extremely hard. I, 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 Lord, I think of all the folks in this church who have gone through extreme difficulty in the past several years. We've been si- uh, shoulder to shoulder with them, uh, arm in arm, walking through these things. And, and I think about how, how easy it would be to get bitter against you, to think, Lord, you have you've abandoned me, you've left me, you've forgotten about me. God, I pray you would help these folks to see that not only is that not the case, it's the exact opposite, that you have been with us every step, and you have a plan and a purpose, even though it's beyond our, our understanding, beyond our, our expectation. It's far deeper. Help us to be equipped like you want us to be equipped. Father, bless now as we deal with you now. I, I pray you'd work in our hearts. There are folks here who need to confess pride, need to confess laziness, need to confess uh, selfishness or whatever, and standing in the way of them trusting in you through their trials. And, and a lot of us need to preemptively decide now we're going to trust you. We're going to count it all joy because we haven't faced that big trial yet. It's coming. We know it's coming. And we, we need to trust you through it. So Lord, work in our hearts and help us to be ready for when it comes that we would trust you fully. You are our joy, Lord. You are our strength. And we trust in you in Jesus' name. Amen. As you deal with the Lord, as the Lord deals with you, feel free to stay in your seat and pray if you need to. But the rest of you, if you would stand, number 533, we're going to sing, O God, my joy, you reign above. Especially, I want you to pay close attention to that second stanza. It speaks of the trials we face, that God is still our great joy. Would you stand 533? We'll sing together. Eric, come.